please turn to Malachi chapter 3. This is the final message in the Live Generously series. This one's titled Storehouse or Poorhouse. Now, before you jump to any conclusions on what I mean by that, hang with me. You'll understand where I'm going with that, okay? We've been in this series on generosity, which can be harder to talk about from the pulpit due to fear of what people might think. And when you talk about the topic of tithing, which is our topic today, that can also be a hard one because not everybody sees eye to eye on that. And in the midst of that, I also think it's funny that since we canceled last week, the Sunday that you guys are going to be voting on me to be the lead pastor, we're going to talk about tithing today. <laughs> so, you know, that's just how it goes. But honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rather have it any other way because to me, I just think I'm going to share my heart with you on this subject and um, you're free to disagree with me on it. And uh, in the midst of that, though, one of the things I've said in this series is I like talking about this because for me, I think it is such a thrill to give. And a lot of you have experienced that and you agree with me on that. And in the midst of that, I just think to recognize what we've talked about in this series already, we've had the principle of sowing and reaping and we talked about in the heart or the core of generosity is God's grace at work in your life. He's touched your heart, and maybe he moves upon you in a way to say, I want to give towards that in his kingdom. God's grace is at work, and ultimately the heart of generosity is to see people come to know Christ and enter into the kingdom of God. We also talked about recognizing that everything we have is an investment into our life from God, and he expects a return. And we used the parable, and we looked at a servant that had absolutely nothing to, to, to say for what was given to him. And when we looked at that, one of the things that we see is the principle of multiplication. How is it, how's it multiplied? It's multiplied when you put it to work. And so that's important for us to recognize that what God's invested in our life, we put to work and he uses to advance his kingdom, to multiply things in his kingdom. And today we talk about the principle of tithing. And in my studies for this message, it's important to note that some of the most honorable followers of Christ do not see to eye to eye on the topic of tithing. Different people share different convictions and reasons for those convictions. And today I'm going to share with you my personal conviction and my reason for that conviction. But before I do that, I want us to build an understanding before I unpack some things. So there's a couple camps when it comes to tithing. The first camp says that the tithe, or giving 10% of your income to the local church, that is still in effect today. Something that the Old Testament followers would do, this is something that the New Testament followers should also do. The other side says this is no longer in effect today because Christ has come and there's a new way of doing things. We're no longer under the law. So over here, you've got, I mean, amazing guys like Charles Stanley. Maybe you've heard of him before. Okay, you've got David Jeremiah. Maybe you've heard of him before. Or Robert Morris. Okay, these are guys that say the tithe is still in effect today for believers. Then over here, you've got guys like John Piper, who would say it's not in effect today. Or Francis Chan. Or Charles Spurgeon would say it's not in effect today. And their reasoning, they say that, would be, is because we're no longer under the law like the Old Testament Jews were. And they would use Romans 7, where Paul says, you've died to the law through the body of Christ. 
And by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Holy Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in other words, they would see Jesus and they would look at him and say, he's fulfilled the law for us and we now have the law of Christ. Therefore, we no longer observe tithing like they would in the Old Testament. And to insist that the tithe is still in effect today is to nullify, at least in part, the sacrifice of Christ and also return to the idea of a works mentality. We have to work for these things in order to be right with God. Now, I'm going to come back to that statement, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's problems with both views. And one of my, um, just thinking about this, the one thing I point out is the -the off-the-hook problem. So for those who do say that the tithe is in effect today, if they give their 10% to the local church, then they're like, all right, I'm done. You know, I'm off the hook. I, I did what I feel I'm supposed to, what I think I see in Scripture. So what do you think of that, God? 10%, you know, and then they think they're off the hook. The off the hook on the other side says, well, I am free from the law, so I don't have to give anything. I'm off the hook. So you can see how both of those viewpoints have problems if you take them in the wrong direction, okay? So just understand that, and then a little bit of a history lesson. Did you know that the Jews actually had three tithes? Three of them. So under the law, there was the Levite tithe, or what would be known as the Lord's tithe. Now, a Levite would come from the family line of Levi, and these were the ones who would be the priests. They would conduct the services and the needs in the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, And in the midst of that, in Leviticus, the Bible says, all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, it's the Lord's. It is holy or set apart or consecrated to the Lord. So that first 10% went to support the temple and the priests, which was incredibly important if Israel was to be faithful in their calling as a nation and as a people of God. They needed the direction and the place to worship. And that first tithe allowed them to have the resources to be able to do so. So in 2 Chronicles 31, Hezekiah commanded that people contribute to support the priests and Levites, and I quote, that they may devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So as you support them, they devote themselves to the scriptures, and then they bring those scriptures to the people and help guide them in their worship. Okay, Numbers 18 The Bible says, I've given the children of Levi, or the priests, all the tithe in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform. And that work is the tabernacle of meeting. So that first tithe was to go towards the tabernacle or temple and the priests, those who served in those places. Then there was a second tithe, and this was called the festival tithe. And you can pull this from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Essentially, this additional 10% paid for all the celebrations that the people of Israel would have. Okay? So that just kind of breaks things down. Then every three years, there was a third tithe that would be used to take care of those who would be in need. So Deuteronomy 26 talks about giving to the Levites, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, 
so that they may eat and be filled. And then this is what it says in Deuteronomy 26. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and given it to them according to all your commandments which you've commanded me. So every year the Jews tithe around 23% of their income. Now you're like, wait a second, you said there was three, but one was every third year, so divide that by three, you're at around the 23 and change. So that doesn't count, though, their free will offerings, their temple taxes, and other things along their way. And you're probably looking at giving that exceeded 25% of their income. So it's pretty crazy to think about. I mean, you look at what was commanded to them in Scripture, and that's how they lived their lives. Now, what gets debated today is the first tithe, bringing that 10% to your place of worship. And it's the one that Leviticus stated is the Lord's. This is the Lord's. It's holy. It's set apart. It's consecrated. And even though one side says it's not in effect today, listen to some things that they still say. Okay, so this is John Piper's words. He says, a middle-class American who is only tithing 10% is probably robbing God. (laughs) What? And here's where he breaks that down. He says, in other words, we've become so accustomed to our Western prosperity and its way of thinking and its way of life that we think 5 or 10% is generous. Piper goes on to say, and you can see why he would say this, we should value our riches in Christ so highly, our freedom from sin so highly, our gospel so highly, that we would simply love to give. And we should outgive those who were under the Old Testament law because everything is greater with Christ. So why wouldn't our giving be greater than the Old Testament Jews? Okay, Charles Spurgeon, he says, the absence of this law or rule that it's in effect today, it does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather that you should give more. Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the term Christian liberality, it is to be according to the example of Christ himself. So this is what he says. Give till you feel it. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was proved by the fact that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave till he felt it. He gave till he knew that he was giving all that he had, and I do verily believe that the great sweetness of giving to God begins when we feel the pinch, when we have to deny ourselves in order that we may give. So while these guys' conviction is that we're no longer mandated to give the tithe, they do affirm that in the New Testament age that we live in today, we should probably be doing more than the tithe. So now going back to the statement I had earlier that if the tithe was no longer in effect today, if we said that it's in effect today, that we nullify in part the sacrifice of Christ, my conviction is that the tithe is in effect today. And I don't want to nullify Christ's sacrifice, so it looks like I'm going right into the face of that statement. But here's why my conviction is that way. 
Because for me personally, I see it before the law was given. And I'm going to break that down for you as to why I see it. I think this is a principle that came about before you have Moses giving the law to the Jews. And it starts back in Genesis. If you look at chapter 4, Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel. Okay, And if you look at this, the Bible says when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his best crops, excuse me, some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Now the Bible says the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his. And looking at that, it's a hard issue. That's the, if you really get down to the nitty gritty, it was a hard issue. But what made it acceptable or not acceptable is one gave some of his crops, just kind of like, well, here you go, God. And the other one gave from the firstborn of his flock. There's a first fruit component to his offering. And Proverbs 3, verse 9, the Bible says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. In Exodus 23, 19, the Bible says, As you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. So there's the first fruit principle. Okay, but in Genesis 14, the Bible gives us a little bit of a scene here with Abram or Abraham and Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was either Jesus Christ himself or a symbolic representation of Christ. And I know there's a lot of you know, views on Melchizedek, but in the midst of that, we look at he's at least some symbolic representation of Christ. And he blesses Abram with a blessing... And then the Bible says this, Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. Okay, now, Jacob has a son, his name's Isaac, and he eventually has a son, and his name's Jacob. So this is a grandson of, of uh, Abram, or Abraham, and in Genesis 28, Jacob sets up a stone, and he speaks to God when he sets this stone up, and he says this, this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, will be God's house. The word Bethel comes into the equation there. Bethel means God's house. And this is what Jacob says to God. Of all that you give me, I will surely give the tenth to you. As he's speaking to God. So for me, I see it there in Genesis. But if you walk with me to the New Testament, I see Jesus address this as well. And he's speaking to Pharisees, who I said, remember the problem over here is that if we just give the tithe, you know, I'm off the hook. He called them out on that. Because they were given the tithe, and they were being very, very diligent with the tithe, but then they were totally neglecting the needs of people around them. And this is what Jesus says to them. You can see this in Matthew 23 or Luke 11. Jesus says, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, I realize both sides could probably use that verse to defend where they're coming from. Because I'm over here saying, well, to me, Jesus says, yes, you should tithe, so I'm going to do it. 
This side over here could say, well, Jesus said that, but this new way had not been, you know, um, if you will, taken place yet because he had not died and rose again. So they were still under the law. And so, of course, Jesus would say that because the new way hadn't come. But for me, I just see Jesus saying, yes, you should tithe. And for me, that's something that, that I, in my conviction, I hold. Hebrews 7, talking about Melchizedek once again, we talk about Abraham, our spiritual father, tithing to Melchizedek back in Genesis, who was either Jesus Christ himself or a symbolic representation of Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 8, says, Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there Jesus receives them. And for me, when I look at that verse... When I give the tithe to my local church, Jesus receives that in heaven. And I told you, this is my personal conviction, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and if I just want you guys to tithe to the local church, okay? When I say it's my personal conviction, it is what the Weller household does. And it's something that, for me, the conviction is when we, when we pray about what it is that we should give in the kingdom, this is not an item we, we pray and go, should we give the tithe? We just do it. We don't pray about that. That's our conviction. But there's a difference between the tithe and free will offering. Free will offering, to me, is anything above the tithe. So if there's something at church that I feel the Holy Spirit telling me, invest in that, then we'll invest in that. If there's something outside the church, there's a ministry that we could support, we'll invest in that. If there's missionaries or ministries that, that are just close to us, we know all of those things, those are free will offerings. And those are the things that we would pray about. But for us, we're not going to pray about the tithe because our conviction is we think God's asking us to do that and we're just going to do it. Okay? So Malachi chapter 3. Verse 6, the Bible says, this is God speaking, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances, and you've not kept them. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. But then the people ask, in what way shall we return? And God says, well, a man robbed God, yet you've robbed me. And then they said, in what way have we robbed you, God? And he says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you to you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the, the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. And all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. So I took that particular passage and I looked at the word storehouse and I looked at that word in Hebrew and I looked back throughout the Old Testament to see where this word would be showing up. 
And so storehouse could also be looked at in the same word as treasuries. Okay, storehouse or treasuries. And 1 Chronicles 28 talks about this storehouse. And it tells us that David gave his son Solomon plans to build the temple. And the Bible says these were plans he got from the Holy Spirit. And these plans for the temple included the space to worship. It included the staffing, right, the priests that would conduct things. It included the services that would be offered in this place, and it also included the supplies, the things that he spelled out for Solomon. This all had to be provided for through tithes and offerings. So the people had to jump in and support the cause, if you will, the ministry that was going to take place. And Charles Stanley likens the Old Testament storehouses to the New Testament church today. Are we meeting in a space? Yes. Are you guys awake? Yes. Is there staffing here? Yes. Are there services that this church has, ministries that we offer? Yes. Okay. Are there supplies that we need in order to conduct those things? Yes. Okay. So you can see how this is likened to that. In the same way as they would bring their tithes and offerings, we bring our tithes and offerings to the local church so that the space is there, the staffing is there, the service is there, and the supplies are there to advance the kingdom of God. And so the word storehouse and treasury, you can see this show up in several places. And this is where I started to get the title of this message. The title came to me before I got these verses, by the way. And so in the midst of this, Joshua 6 talks about how silver, gold, bronze, iron, they are consecrated or they're set apart to the Lord and they shall come into the treasuries of the Lord or to the storehouse. Okay, 1 Kings 7 says, All the work for the house of the Lord was finished and Solomon brought in the silver and the gold and the furnishings and he put them into the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And many times in the Old Testament, and as I was studying these words, you see kings giving their enemies gifts from the Lord's treasury due to pressure, due to persecution, due to fear. They had enemies that were surrounding them, and to be able to kind of you know, buy a little more time, they'd pull from the storehouses and give them to these kings, and it would buy them more time. And so they're giving out of the Lord's treasuries or out of the storehouses. And it gets to a point finally in 2 Kings 24 where King Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem captive. And in verse 13, the Bible says that he carried out from there all the treasuries of the house of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar plundered Israel, including their storehouse. The Bible says he also carried into captivity all of Jerusalem, and here's the part right here. None remained except the poorest people of the land. The main reason the enemy plundered Israel and Judah was because that they were living in disobedience. They lost their effectiveness for God. And so what God was allowing to happen was the enemy to come in and put the pressure on and the heat on, if you will. And they were starting to, to dish out what was in the storehouse because of all the pressure. 
And eventually, you get to the point where all that's left, it says, was the poor of the land. They stopped being effective for God, and what was once a storehouse now became a poor house. In the same way today, churches have to be effective for God. It must be a place that's a storehouse where people get fed. It is my hope and it's my prayer that when you come to this church, you are getting fed. If that stops, if that stops, it's this trickle effect that will eventually take everything out of the place and it's, a, and it's a poorhouse. You see that in churches all around us. I mean, they're more than half empty. Their budgets are going down. I mean, it's like, what do they do next? They got to decide, are we going to close this place? I mean, what are we going to do? And as churches cave more and more to culture, more and more to fear, more and more to pressure, more and more to preference, the treasury will eventually run out. Bottom line, it'll become a poorhouse. So this is why this message is named this way, is because it's actually a call of accountability to our church here. Here's the great news, though, and you can take this to the bank. God will provide for churches that are effective in the kingdom of God. So let's be effective for the kingdom. And he'll take care of the bill along the way. Right? That's right. And so here's some things. Here's some characteristics of an effective church. What do you think is coming first? Any guesses out there? Yeah, great job, Lance. Preach and teach the authoritative, inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Number one. Okay? Clapping. All right. Number two, they preach and they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that we're all sinners, we need a Savior. We have a sin issue that needs solving, and Christ did it on the cross, but you and I carry a responsibility. We have to respond to that. You have to make a decision. What am I going to do with Christ in my life? And churches that preach the gospel, they're effective for the kingdom. Churches that move in the power of the Holy Spirit. Churches that love like you can't believe. Churches that seek out and witness to those who are lost and churches that listen to God's voice. Those are some characteristics of effective churches and God help Faith Community Church to be effective. Help us to be effective. When it comes to listening to God's voice, there's something that I would want to encourage and challenge us as a congregation through this Live Generously series is I want to encourage you, and I'm going to do this with my family as well, is to sit down and go, okay, God, 2020, 2020, how do you want my family to give in the kingdom? And pray over that and then just listen and say, God, where do you want to put the resources that you've invested into our care? Where do you want those to go? And to really be intentional. Habakkuk 2 says to make a plan. So sit down as a family, make a plan, write out a vision. This is where we think God's telling us for these resources to go. And here's the thing, be ready to be stretched in that a little bit. 
is that where does God want you to invest in the kingdom? Not just at Faith Community Church, okay? In the kingdom of God. Where would God want you to be investing? I want you to listen to this testimony of a couple who have sat down and prayed over those very things. My mom and dad taught myself and my brother the principles of tithing when we were real young. In fact, I remember having this little fireman's jar with the, the hat was the lid. And um, in there I kept my money as newlyweds, my wife Heather and I practiced tithing as well. And during those early years of our marriage, it's difficult to give the tithe because you, you want that money to go towards paying off your school debt, uh, building a new home. We had a plan. We wanted to um, be debt-free, but we always tithed. That was one thing that was not a compromise for us. We had seen the faithfulness in the Lord with our current giving that was above tithe. It just made us naturally want to give more. A few years ago, I set a goal of being a reverse tither. So reverse tithing is living on 10% and giving 90% back to the Lord. Eight or so years ago, we felt the Lord had given us a particular number. There were feelings of nervousness. There was anxiety. That was definitely our first year that we thought, we're not going to make it. We're going to have to borrow money to make it throughout the year due to my seasonal business. But we just trusted the Lord in that and just knew that He wouldn't give us that idea without giving us His grace in it. I remember writing on my budget sheet, the Lord's house before my house. Surprisingly, we made it to spring. The money was there. My wife and I joked, the Lord had to cook the books. How did we make it? A year later, we were able to visit where the project money went. We saw what it actually did for the people of that community, and it really ignited something in us to do more. Paul talks about using our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is pure and perfect worship. Our generosity, our finances, what we can give back to the Lord is a form of worship. We want to worship our King with our finances. I feel like the steps getting there are simple. Be faithful with a little so you can be faithful with a lot. This year we've set a goal of 40%. 40% of what we make, we want to give it to the Lord as worship. Matt and I have taken baby steps over many years and just continue to say, yes, Lord, use us. When we feel a prompting, we're going to say, Lord, we're raising it up again, and we're just going to constantly work towards that goal of 90%. We need radical givers, givers that are going to consider sacrificing their finances as much as the missionary going. If people really grasp their responsibility in the Great Commission, working out their faith as they are committed tithers, as they're committed kingdom builders, the sky's the limit. Worship costs you something. What are you leaving on the altar of worship? quite a testimony, and I'm not using that video to guilt trip you into giving 90% of your income to the church, okay? The reason why I show that testimony is because we have an example of a couple that sat down and prayed and said, God, what do you want to do with our finances? He is Lord over that area. You, you don't just have him be Lord over this, and then I'll take care of this over here. We need to ask ourselves, God, what do you want to do with this? 
this is something you've placed in my life. The, the last message I gave, there was that, that statement that it's like anything in your life you could put in this, and it's my blank should be used to glorify God and multiply his kingdom. Your finances that God has placed in your life are to be used to glorify him and expand his kingdom. And listening to the Holy Spirit tell you where that should go. One thing I want to do is just help guide, recognizing that these are some good questions of how to invest in the kingdom of God. Where do you put these resources? That's, there's a responsibility to that, and these are just some, some uh, questions you can ask yourself when you're looking at ministries and wondering if you should support them or not. First off, does the ministry glorify God? Okay, the other one is, is the ministry biblically sound and Christ-centered? Does the ministry advance God's kingdom so are people getting saved through this ministry? The other part of that is, does the ministry eliminate spiritual darkness? So maybe there's certain things that the enemy is plundering, but yet there's ministries out there that are speaking life into them. And the other part of that is, does this ministry steward God's resources well. Some ministries don't do the best job with that. But it's good to ask those questions. As the Lord is speaking these things to you and ministries come about in that time of prayer, is to discern, God, where do you want us to place these resources? Those are some good questions to ask along the way. One of the most important things I said that could come out of this series is if somebody comes to know Jesus... So let's just set the giving aside for a second and recognize earlier I said this is what the gospel is. You need to do something about the sin that's in your life and the only answer to that is Jesus Christ. And maybe you've never come before him and said, God, please save me from my sin. Well, I want to extend that invitation to you to respond to him today. And so as a congregation, can we just bow our heads now as we pray together? Lord, we thank you that you gave your only son so that we could be set free from sin. And Lord, if there's someone listening today that they haven't dealt with sin and they haven't placed you into their life, I pray, Father, they would respond to that today. Just in faith saying, Christ, I need you in my life. And if there's somebody who's feeling that tug to do this today, I just simply ask that you'd pray with me in your heart. Just say, Jesus, today I surrender. I ask that you'd come and you'd forgive me of my sin. That you'd make me a new person that you'd give me new life, that you'd come and be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Today I respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I thank you, God, for your generosity toward me. Thank you for this gift of salvation. And Father, for all of us, as this series comes to a close, I pray that we would truly 
take time in, in our families, in our homes, in our personal walk to say, God, where is it that you want me to invest in the kingdom? And help us to listen and hear clearly, but also to step out in faith if there's things that seem like on our own, we can't do this, but give us the supernatural grace to respond as you speak. And Father, I thank you. I thank you for all that you've done in this series. Help us to be people who are generous in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.